Good morning, everybody. If you are tuning in this morning and you're new here, special welcome to you. Uh, we have been going through the Book of Ruth, and we are actually in our final sermon, the Book of Ruth. So if you're tuning in for the first time, you basically just step into the last scene of the movie, and you have no idea what happened in the beginning or the middle of the movie. And so I encourage you throughout this week to tune in to the or go to our church website and listen to all the sermons or read the whole book of Ruth. It's a very short book and you should be able to do it within 10 minutes. So let's bow down in prayer. Father, we thank you for this marvelous book, short as it is, but yet so deep and so profound. And I ask that God, would you speak to us through your word and that your word will uh, edify us, it will convict us, Help us to trust you even more. So I ask that uh, you would guide me as I preach your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart may be acceptable in your sight. And I ask that during this time, would you please open up the eyes of our hearts to behold the wondrous things that come from your word. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hopefully the slide is up, but let me begin by saying uh, Joe Queenan, a writer for the New York Times and GQ, he wrote a book on what he calls a short but self-important history of the baby boomer generation. Now, if you're a baby boomer in this room, uh, take your, you know, criticize him instead. <laughs> but so in his book, he criticizes his generations, that is the baby boomer, uh, the absolute inability to accept the ordinary. Queenan says, and I quote, because baby boomers are obsessed with living in the moment, they insist that every experience be a watershed, every meal extraordinary, every friendship significant, every concert superb, and every sunset meta-celestial. Well, life isn't like that. Most meals are okay. Most friendships work until they don't work. Most concerts are decent. Sunsets are sunsets. This inability to accept the ordinary has ruined, ruined everything for everybody else because nothing can ever again be exactly what it was in the first place. Ordinary, end quote. So what Queenan is trying to say here is that people have often gotten sucked into a culture where they need to be extraordinary, produce groundbreaking work, and live under the alluring lights of a Las Vegas culture. Weddings have to look like the royal wedding. Kids must enter into a prestige university. And even churches must have high quality production. Everything has to be fancy. The Book of Ruth, however, is not really like that. For the most part, and I will argue for the majority of the book of Ruth, it describes ordinary human beings with an ordinary life going through somewhat ordinary events, much like ours. We don't see God doing incredible actions such as sending 10 plagues or parting the Red Sea. There are no miracles such as raising the dead or calming the storm. There are no prophets in this story. Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi, and other characters, did, they did not receive direct revelation from God. 
We don't see God making any promises and covenants with these characters. These things, the things we have seen in this story from a human perspective are just the mundane and ordinary life events, like a crisis that happened in the beginning, losing loved ones, traveling, working in the field, enjoying a feast, and doing legal business. But behind the ordinary things is the extraordinary God working out his good and sovereign plan for this woman named Naomi through ordinary means. Naomi, if you remember, suffered greatly by losing her two husbands and her two sons. And after coming back to Bethlehem with Ruth, she was extremely bitter. She indicted God for taking everything away from her and making her and bringing her back empty. She does think God is sovereign, but he's not good to her. And if you and I are honest with ourselves, you, you and I may think, tend to think that way when we go through storms of life. And maybe if we don't believe that God is good, then we are afraid that God is going to leave us and abandon us. However, that's not who God is. Although Naomi may have believed that God is not good, in the first chapter, God was not done with her. Her first chapter is, was not the final chapter. God mysteriously woven these ordinary events and mundane life and the details and ordinary human beings to show his goodness and his loving kindness to her. And so I titled this sermon, The Goodness of Our Sovereign God. And what we can learn about the goodness of our sovereign God is that First, God never wastes our suffering, but he uses it for his greater good. If I could get this next slide. Anyways, well, right now we will see how the end is always better than the beginning for Naomi. Because as we look at this story, throughout this whole story, he really uses suffering for good and even through ordinary human beings. And so with your Bible in hand, we're going to look at the final passage of Ruth. So beginning in Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. If you remember the previous passage, Boaz and the other redeemer were doing a legal business. And so after the legal business, it's time for Boaz and Ruth to get married. And if you only focus the book of Ruth as mainly a love story, then you may be disappointed in knowing that not a whole lot of details are given regarding the wedding. Certainly there are love aspects told in this book, but it's ultimately not a romance story. The focus, I think, is on Naomi. Through the marriage of Boaz and Ruth, Naomi's tragic circumstance is coming to a resolution. And next, we are told that Boaz and Ruth had a son. And notice closely that the reason why Ruth was able to conceive was because of the Lord's work. It was the Lord who gave her conception and subsequently had a son. We are told back in Ruth chapter 1, verse 4, 
that Marlon, Naomi's son, married Ruth the Moabite. And after living in Moab for about 10 years, we're not told that they had children. And then later on, Marlon died. And so it's quite possible that Ruth may have been barren. And in that culture, barrenness was a shameful thing. And without being able to conceive and have a child, especially a son, the li that line of the family cannot continue. However, the Lord in this passage, he intervened and he gave her a son. Back in Ruth chapter 4, verse 12, the, the people and the elders at the gate prayed and blessed Boaz that the Lord will give him an offspring by Ruth. And so what you need to know from the prayers given in verses 11 to 12, there aren't just wishy-washy prayers or just nice things to say, but their prayers were genuine and they have meanings. God listened to their prayers and God answered all of them in these last few verses. God gives Boaz and Ruth a son. God makes Boaz's name renowned in Bethlehem. And God does make the house of Boaz like the house of Paris in that his descendant will continue. What we can learn about the goodness of our sovereign God is that God answers prayers. He certainly answers prayers and he answers them in his own way, in his own timing. And after giving birth to a son, Boaz and Ruth will now exit the scene. And the focus will be on Naomi, the son and the woman. Take a look at verses 14 to 15. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Now, if you haven't noticed yet, every single chapter in this book concludes with a scene with Naomi. Chapter 1, it concludes with Naomi being bitter. Chapter 2, it concludes with Naomi seeing a glimpse of hope because Ruth discovered, found, her, uh, found her relative, Boaz, as one of the redeemers. Chapter 3, Naomi tells, tells Ruth to wait for Boaz to do his work. And similarly here, this scene ends with Ruth as well. Therefore, that's why I think Naomi should be regarded as the central character in this book. And the women of Bethlehem, they praise God, they worship God, and they give God all the credits and all the glory because he provided a redeemer for Naomi. And if you notice, look, if you look closely, this redeemer is actually not referring to Boaz. Certainly, he is the kinsman redeemer, but based on the construction of verses 14 to 15 and the pronouns used here, that he, the his, and the him, this redeemer is pointing us to the newborn son. Consider the one thing that Naomi lacked that this child will fulfill, an heir. If we remember the responsibility of Boaz as a kinsman redeemer back in verses 9 to 10, he is to perpetuate the name of the dead by providing an heir on behalf of Elimelech. Further, uh, and so in a legal sense, this child will carry on Elimelech's name and inherit his property. 
Furthermore, he's going to be the one who will care for Naomi at an old age by providing food, security, protection, and rest to her when, she, when he grows up. As the text tells us in verse 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life and nourisher of your old age. This child will reverse Naomi's bitterness, and she will now be comforted and restored. Not only that, the woman also say a prayer for him. May his name be renowned in Israel. Back in verse 11, Boaz will be renowned in the town of Bethlehem. And so now his son will be renowned in the nation of Israel. How so? As we will find out later, he falls in the ancestral line of King David. And so when Israel wants to find out David's family history, Boaz and his son will be listed in the genealogy. It is, this is another prayer that God answers to the woman. In the latter part of verse 15, the woman also comment on Ruth, where she loves Naomi. And we have seen throughout this book, all the things that Ruth did are for the sake of Naomi's well-being. And ever since chapter 1, Ruth has shown her loving kindness, her loyalty, and her faithfulness to her. And regardless of Naomi's bitterness and her tragedy, Ruth hasn't given up on her. And she chose to serve, and she chose to provide for her needs sacrificially. That is what love is, and it can be applied in every relationship you have with people, your family members, friends, children, your spouse, and even your enemies. And Ruth receives perhaps the best compliment and honor in this book from the woman. Aside from the fact that she is a worthy woman, the women here say, say that she is more to Naomi than seven sons. Seven is a number that symbolizes perfection in the Bible. But why seven sons? Perhaps seven is an ideal number of sons to have in Israel. And in that culture, a, a son was prized because he will carry the name, the name of the family to the next generation. Naomi might have thought that her ways and her ideals of having sons are better so that they can take care and provide for her. And she even told Ruth back in chapter 1 to go back to Moab. You can't do much for me. However, if she did go back to Moab, and if Naomi did not lose her two sons, Naomi would never come to appreciate Ruth as a worthy woman who is more to her than seven sons. She is better than the seven sons. Or, or more accurately, she's better than her ideal ways. This is the supreme tribute to a woman reserved at the end of the book. Ruth, indeed, live out the excellent woman portrayed in Proverbs 31. Furthermore, we see in verses 16 to 17, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and she became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, and the father of Jesse. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. In verse 16, this, the text tells us that Naomi became this child's nurse. What I think this word could mean is that Naomi would be the caregiver of this child, and then if you take a look at verse 17, 
the women say that a son has been born to Naomi, not Boaz and Ruth, as we would expect. But it doesn't mean that they're not parents of this child, since Scripture in, in Matthew chapter 1 tells us so. But remember, this child will inherit the ancestral property of Elimelech. And Leon, Leon Morris, will help us understand that Naomi, as a grandmother, would treat this child, in some sense, her own son. Naomi became childless back in Ruth chapter 1, verse 5. And now this child will end her lament over her childlessness. Naomi, who was in despair of having sons, now, in some sense, has one. This child will be someone, will be the heir who will continue the family line. And furthermore, in verse 17, the woman of the neighborhood, they gave the child a name. Now, this is odd, because usually the parents or the grandparents would give, wouldn't be the ones who named their children. So I don't know how you named your children, but I doubt that you went around in your neighborhood or your next door neighbor knocking on the door and asking them, hey, can you give me a suggestion for a name for my child? You don't do that. I mean, for me and Allison, we name our child Alethea, our daughter Alethea, because, well, Alethea comes from the Greek word truth, and we find that very fascinating. But we can't be too certain why this community of women just somehow gave this child a name. But we, but we do know that the name that they gave is Obed. The word Obed literally means the one who serves, a servant. It is the same root word for Obadiah, one of the short books in the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And the word Obadiah, or the name Obadiah, means servant of the Lord. And just like Ruth, Obed, this child, this new life, will be the one who will serve Naomi, whose life was characterized by bitterness, childlessness, and destituteness. And what we learn about Obed is that he's the father of Jesse, the father of David. Namely, he's the grandfather of the famous king of Israel. So what, the, what does this all mean for Naomi in the story of Ruth? Well, what we can learn about the goodness of our sovereign God is that God restores emptiness to fullness. And the way he restores is better than our way. And the way he restores is often or usually through ordinary means. In this short book, we don't see God raining down manna from heaven for Naomi. We don't see God multiplying loaves and bread or even fishes for her. God just did it through Boaz, who was, just, who was a wealthy man, a worthy man. He, he did it through Ruth, who was obedient and faithful and loyal to her mother-in-law. And the way he restores is often unexpected. And the way he restores is in his perfect timing. And then we arrive to the ending of the story of Ruth. It is the best part that Christians love to read, the genealogy. And from this passage, what we can learn about the goodness of our sovereign God is that God's plan is far-reaching than we can ever, ever expect. So I don't know to what extent you can trace your family line, 
or trace back your family line, but the Bible does say we all came from Adam and Eve. But I wonder if any of you keep a family tree at home. I think most of us don't even know who our great-great-grandparents were. And I recently had a conversation with my uh, extended cousin, and, about, and we talked about our ancestors and how our great-great-grandparents, they actually came to North America from China. From st- some stories told and heard, I learned that my great-grandfather or my great-great-grandfather, he might have went to San Francisco and then he worked at the Chinatown there. And then eventually he moved all the way up to Prince Rupert and worked at the fishery. And subsequently, I think he was buried there. But I bet most of us don't even know who our ancestors were that stretched all the way back to the 1500s. When you read the genealogy of the Bible, you need to understand how significant that is. Because we are told that that the genealogy stretches the generation up to about 6,000 years from Adam to David and David to Jesus Christ. We have the Bible to tell us about the history of Israel and the origin of humanity. Now, I understand like some of us think genealogy is just a bunch of names and rather uninteresting. And perhaps the most interesting part about the genealogy is picking out a name for your child. However, let me try my best to convince you and persuade you to love reading the genealogy. In these last, last five verses of Ruth, the author documents 10 names of the family line from Paris to David. And as your, as your Bible reading, or as your Bible heading may say, this is the genealogy of David. This genealogy is fascinating because the names we see here are all part of God's providential care in preserving the line of Paris that will eventually merge with the storyline of Ruth. In the mystery of God's providence, Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi could never have known that the event that happened to them and their little family will bring forth God's plan of redemption for the nation of Israel and also for the whole world. And so if your Bible in hand, let's read the genealogy. Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. Now these are the generations of Paris. Paris father Hezron, Hezron father Ram, Ram father Aminadab, Aminadab father Nashon, Nashon father Salmon, Salmon father Boaz, Boaz father Obed, Obed father Jesse, and Jesse father David. Well, the word generation here in verse 18 could sometimes mean descendants. And then the author would list out the names of such and such. So in this verse, this is describing the descendants of the house of Paris. So let me help you understand the relationship of the ancestor of Paris, if I could get the slide working. Okay, the slides aren't working, but it's okay. Uh, So Paris, Paris was one of the sons of Judah. Judah was one of the sons of Jacob. And Jacob was one of the sons of Isaac. And Isaac was the son of Abraham. And all these characters are all in Genesis, the book of Genesis. 
In Ruth chapter 4, verse 12, Perez was the son of Judah and Tamar. And if you don't know their story, let me give you a summary, a brief summary of Genesis chapter 38. As I, as I mentioned, Judah was one of the sons of Israel, or, Jude, or, or Jacob. He, if you don't know, Judah was a wicked and defiled man who, con- who committed sexual immorality with a Canaanite woman named Shua. And through her, Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Judah gave his eldest, eldest son, Ur, Tamar, for, for marriage. However, Ur was a wicked man, and the Lord put him to death. And afterwards, Onan was to perform the levered marriage and bear offspring on behalf of Ur. However, Onan went into Tamar, but he wasted the semen on the ground. And so the Lord put Onan to death because he did not want to raise an offspring for Ur. Judah was too scared to give Shelah, his third son, to Tamar because he was afraid that the Lord would also put him to death. And so he told Tamar, to remain as a widow. And then one day, Judah went out to shear his sheep, and Tamar dressed up like and Tamar dressed up like a cult prostitute. Judah found her on the roadside, not knowing that she's his daughter-in-law. Both of them had sexual relations. And then three months later, Judah found out that Tamar was pregnant by sexual immorality. Judah was about to burn her to death until Tamar exposes that the twins that she's bearing were Judas' sons. Paris was one of the twins. And the birth of Paris was, rad- was also pretty interesting. Her twin brother, Zerah, was supposed to be born first, but Paris might have pulled him back and he broke out in front of Zerah, and hence he was born first. And therefore, the meaning of the name Paris is breach. Paris was born of prostitution, sexual immorality, and incest. Paris was born into a family where the, where the father was about to burn his mother and subsequently burn him as well. That is a very messed up family to be born into. And yet Paris is listed first at the end of Ruth. In the shame and honor culture, you wouldn't want to put that name first. So why did the author begin with the line of Paris? Why didn't he begin with Abraham, for instance? Well, this actually validates and testifies the, the authenticity of the scriptures. The reason the author wanted to begin with Paris is because his clan, the Parasites, dominated the tribe of Judah in the city of Bethlehem. And so the people of Bethlehem will remember that their ancestry can be traced back to Paris, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 2. And along, the, along with the 12 tribes of Israel, Paris would bring his family to Egypt. And one of the sons, one of his sons that he fathered is Hezron. If I could get the slides, please. Okay, there we go. So, he fathered Hezron. Now, not much is known of Hezron, aside from the fact that he lived in Egypt. And as we continue to read the genealogy here, 
there will be some names where we aren't given much information or history in the Bible. And so we're told here from verse 19 that Hezron fathered Ram and fathered father Aminadab. Now, here's an interesting fact. Moses' brother, Aaron the priest, married Aminadab's daughter. In other words, Aaron was the, was the son-in-law of Aminadab. And Aminadab fathered Nashon. Now, let's stop here, because Nashon, though we don't talk about him that much, he's actually very important in, in the Old Testament. In 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 10, we are told that Nashon was the prince of the sons of Judah. And in Numbers chapter 7, when, when the tabernacle was finished, was finished setting up, the 12 tribes of Israel were to make an off, offering before the tabernacle to show their worship to the Lord. And guess who was the first tribe to make the offering? It was Nashon of the tribe of Judah. And in Numbers chapter 10, verse 14, under the leadership of Nashon, Judah will be the tribe positioned in the front line, leading the other tribes and leading the nation or leading the nation of Israel to the promised land. That's very significant here, and I'll get back to that later. And Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon is scarcely known in the Bible. However, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew begins his gospel with, by giving us the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, we are told that Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who's Rahab? In Joshua chapter 2, Joshua went out, sent out 12, two spies to, to spy out the land of Jericho. These two spies lodged in the home of Rahab, who was a prostitute. And the official of Jericho found out, and they are searching for the spies. Rahab, although she's a Canaanite, she hid those two spies from the officials because she heard about the Israel's history and how the Lord is going to give this land of Canaan to the Israelites. She showed marvelous faith in acknowledging that the Lord, Yahweh himself, is the God of, of the universe. And as a result, when the Israelites conquered the land of Jericho, Rahab and her family were spared from judgment. And Rahab will be listed as one of, the, one of the people of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And somewhere down the road, Salmon met Rahab and married her and had Boaz. Rahab, a Gentile, was the mother of Boaz whom we learn throughout the series as the worthy man who redeemed Naomi's property, married Ruth, and saved the line of Elimelech. And perhaps, most, perhaps Rahab and Salmon would raise Boaz to be a worthy man and would teach him all the things of, of, his, all the things of what the Lord has done for the family and especially saving Rahab. Back in chapter 2, if you, remember, if you remember that Ruth was gleaning in the field and Boaz just shows up and he was so kind to her and provided for her. Perhaps Boaz was so gracious and kind to Ruth, the Moabite, was because Ruth reminded him of his mother, who was also an outsider 
and a Gentile. That is what Ruth and Rahab have in common. They are both outsiders. They are both Gentiles. And yet they are, they are integrated into the community of God's people. So no longer are they considered, are they defined or, uh, by their ethnicity, Canaanite or Moabite, but now they are part of the, the Israelite culture. They're part of the God's people. That is why God's plan is so far-reaching than we can ever, ever expect. Because his plan includes the worst and the hopeless sinners, such as Judah and Paris. And his plan includes the Gentiles, such as Ruth, Rahab, and even us. God's plan of redemption has always been to include the Gentiles into his fold. And that Israel was to be the light of the nation to the rest of the world and bringing people to worship the one true God. And finally, Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And in God's mystery of providence, he preserved and redeemed this family line in, despite, in spite of its messy and sinful history. And prior to his death, Jacob, he pronounced an extended blessing to Judah, his son, and Judah would receive a royal status. According to Genesis 49, verse 10, one of Judah's descendants will hold a scepter and ruler's staff, which, is, which are the symbol of kingship. And the tribe of Judah was given the preeminence as the ruling tribe. And that is why Nashon was the one who led the tribe of Israel to the land of Canaan, to the promised land, because they were the ruling tribe. And in the descendant of Judah, a king will arise to govern the people of Israel and all people. And remember how the book of Judges ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so we see here in the book of Ruth, it ends with a contrast. It ends with a promise that there will be a king. And his name is, was King David. And this is critical because people will now not try to do what is right in their own eyes, but they will listen to God's anointed king and submit to him as he leads the nation of Israel and obey God. Unfortunately, we know in the story, as we read through the Old Testament, King David was also a sinner who needed forgiveness of sin. He was a murderer and an adulterer according to 2 Samuel 11. However, God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, known famously as the Davidic Covenant. God promised him to establish the house of, the house of David eternally with an eternal throne. And hence, the Apostle Matthew in Matthew chapter 1 intends to point us further down the line of this family where Jesus will eternally will sit on the David's throne and establish his throne forever, and hence fulfill the Davidic covenant. God's plan is far reaching than we can ever expect, because his plan includes sending Christ to be the ultimate redeemer and the ultimate king. And that's why Paul would say this in Galatians chapter 4, verses 5 to 4 to 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption 
as sons. So what, we can, what can we make of all this as we wrap up the book of Ruth? Time does not permit me to explore all the applications, but I'll just offer two. First, suffering so draw us to trust in God's sovereignty and goodness because suffering is never without a purpose. God will never ever waste our sufferings. And I'm not saying it's easy to trust God when we suffer, nor am I saying that trusting God will take away the pain and grief. We can become scared and angry and anxious when the whole world is in chaos. And so if you're suffering this morning, whether in terms of finance, losing a job, dealing with health issues, losing a loved one, and so forth, if you are suffering this morning, remember that your first chapter is not your final chapter. From Ruth chapter 1 to 4, God was always there for Naomi. And remember who the God of the Bible is. He is good. He is sovereign. He will work out all things for good. And although we may not always see the invincible hands of God, we are to be patient and trust and know that He is with us and that He is accomplishing His purposes from the beginning until the end. Second, if you feel unworthy, and you may feel unworthy right now, you may feel hopeless and sinful and that God can never love you and use you and redeem you. You may have grown up in a messed up family, and you may have grown up in an unloving family, and your family line does not look anything virtuous in the eyes of society. But compare your line, your family line, with Jesus' family line. Unlike Jesus' genealogy, well, at least you don't have your genealogy listed up publicly. His family line was filled with wretched sinners who don't deserve any love and mercy from our God. However, don't think that God can never use and, re and redeem unworthy people. As we have learned just now, God chose to use this imperfect family line to be a great blessing to the world through Christ. God's goodness, God's grace, and His love run so deep that he is able to redeem the very worst parts of our the very worst parts of our past into the most radiant parts of our future. What a humbling thought to know that God uses and redeems sinners, outcasts, and lost causes for the advancement of his glorious kingdom. Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe in Romans chapter 8, verse 28? that God works out all things for good to those who love him? Do you believe that God can use your suffering and the crisis in, the, in this world for your good? Do you always need to expect God to do crazy and meta-celestial and signs for you to know that he is good to you and he, he loves you? Or are you content that God is working in the ordinary things of life to show that he is good to you, to show that he loves you? And it's okay to say no to all those questions. It's okay to feel bitter. It's okay to feel those ways. Here, but here's the, here's the truth. God will never leave you or abandon you. He will work it out for good according to his glorious plan. 
And I hope that throughout this series, and for those of you who are here, and for those of you who are listening, have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I hope that throughout the series that you have seen and experienced God's hand of providence in your life. Not only God is God sovereign, that he works out all events in history, he is also good all the time. And all the time, God is good. I mean, I, we used to all, there's this thing where, you know, I would say, like, God is good, and you, you will you respond by saying all the time. But of course, you can try to do that response right now. So I want to say, do a little bit of a interaction with you. I'm going to say God is good, and you respond all the time. So God is good. God is good. And all, all the time? Amen to that. Dr. Herb Sturheim reminded us last week that as we look back at the history, that we look back at the story of fruit and the history of Naomi and the history of the scriptures, we can respond in worship by saying, His love endures forever. That God is good all the time. And so as we move forward into the future, let us trust God. Let us trust God that he will work out all things for good to those who love him. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And that you are sovereign. And we thank you for your word and that you are teaching us marvelous things. And that we can ever expect. Father, we can often get so focused on our immediate context, and rightly so sometimes. But help us to see a bigger plan your bigger plan. Help us to see a bigger picture of what you're doing in our life. And though we may never see what you can use, what you can do with this world, what, we are, what you can do in this lifetime, and how that is going to affect us, and how that is going to affect history 100 years down the road, we know that God, your plan is always, always good. So help us trust you. And for those of us who are struggling, and for those of us who are hesitant to say, yes, that God is your good. We ask that you can comfort them. We ask that you will show your invincible hands to them. And that even through this, these ordinary means of life, the mundane stuff, that somehow they will see the goodness of our great God. And as we celebrate communion and remember the death of our Lord, uh, please continue to help us to remember why our Redeemer came to save us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.